You're listening to Sarah Hagen backstage with interviews and insights from years inside the music industry. Join Sarah as she talks with masters of their crafts, finding out what makes them tick both inside and outside of the music business. Welcome to Sarah Hagen backstage. My guest today, Jason McGurr, is best known as the drummer in the band Death Cab for Cutie, but he also does a bunch of recording and he teaches. Today, I'm going to talk to Jason about getting back out on the road with Death Cab after such a long time during the pandemic, remote recording, and the changing drum sounds and recording sounds over the years. So come along with me as I catch up with Jason McGurr. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's so awesome to see you. Likewise, if this is how we get to see each other. <laughs> no, I, I got to make it back out to the East Coast. Um, yes. Normally I have at least a NAMM show or PASIC or something that um, we can attend and see each other face to face. But this will have to do for now. I know. I know. Definitely. I think the last time, maybe the last time we saw each other, well, was it at NAMM or was it at PASIC before that? Maybe it was PASIC. Or was it at the... It might have been when I came through town. We played the Bach Wang Theater. Um, and yes. No, it was at Nam. You're right. It was at Nam. The last Nam for both of us. The last Nam. Nam 2020. Yeah. Before. It's yeah. amazing how many people are not going. Um, or they? I think they punted it. Did they push it back? I don't. It's know. in the summer. Yeah, Nam is in the yeah. summer of 2022 now. Yeah, it's crazy. I. Uh, I. You know, had I knew going into it that that was potentially the last NAM that I would be going to. I maybe would have done it different. I mean, I was there for four days, but we we have, I mean, not those who have been to NAM, obviously, who are maybe listening to this can attest to the love-hate relationship with NAM. Um, but I I more miss it now than than hate it, uh, just because, yeah. because I can't go, if that makes sense. But it was always just to see you and and all the the company reps that uh, and the friends and the peers that are usually on the road but to all wind up in one place for that common kind of camaraderie and hang was the best absolutely it was it always like a family reunion um and i love it and i miss it for that too i'm one of those people who like loves nam like and that's and that's why like even though it's exhausting and i would always go home with like pneumonia or something (laughs) you know but like it was worth it because it was so much fun to see everybody and catch up and you know if some years that was like maybe my one of the two times that i would get to the west coast so like seeing all you guys was so much fun um so that you you probably spent more time hydrating at the nam show than any other four or five day span in your year probably You'll be completely dehydrated and exhausted by the end of every day with no voice. <laughs> yes. Well, that and that's the thing. Like, you know, like you said, it's four days, right? But like by the end of day one, I, my voice would be gone no matter what, no matter what I did. So, yeah, hydrating, cough drops, um, all that stuff. And, you know, like it just it, it just never seemed to matter. <laughs> like, I think I think it is the dry air millions of people, not millions, but like literally, I don't even, I can't even tell you how many people that I would hug or handshake or, you know, during the course of those 
four days, which now that we live in this whole different universe with different regulations on all that stuff, I wonder what it would be like now. Lots of lots of waving and like maybe fist, fist bumps. Separation. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a 10th capacity in the building for attendance. Right, right. Definitely a different different thing. But PASIC is next week. And actually, when this goes live, PASIC will have already happened. So um, we're, we're, we're talking in the future. Um, but it's ha it's it's live in person. And I just am so like excited about it. I just am, you know, just seeing everybody again and seeing drumming and like being within the community is it's just so exciting. So my hope is that all these things come back. I yeah I, I can attest to the being in person with people. Um, I was recently on the road and you forgot when you're on stage and doing your thing. Even though even though the the audience was looked like this, you mm -hmm. forgot that pandemic at all. You were just back in the cockpit of this crazy flight, this journey of of inspiration and and giving back to people the thing that you you know the thing that I've been working my whole life to achieve and. Here I was, and it's like I forgot. I totally forgot that there was ever a problem. That's um, amazing. And I'm sure that going to PASIC, you you're gonna feel the same way. Like despite being a bit, I mean, maybe it'll be anytime. I think I go out in, in a big crowd. I'm, I'm cognizant mm -hmm. of what's at stake. But uh, I thought about heading out to PASIC this year, but it just didn't work with my schedule. Yeah, I mean, I can totally understand what you're talking about, and I feel like like I'm excited to get somewhere where it feels like a bit of normalcy, like a bit of pre-pandemic activity. You know, I am so excited about that. I actually went to my first show back after a year and nine months. I went to go see Nate Smith the other night, just mm. phenomenal, of course. But it felt like, oh my gosh, this is my old life. Like this is like normal. Said you went? without seeing a show a year and nine months a year and nine months yeah yeah and nine months ago would not have been a good time to go see a show yeah no um, no yeah and did you feel that like what i was talking about despite being in the audience however whatever you had to present to get into the show for a vaccination card or whatever yeah it, did you kind of forget for a minute were you back in this like yes yes life? i did I did. I forgot for a moment, um, just standing next to people, standing next to people and like, look, even though it was definitely people were not on top of each other, everyone was masked. Um, so like there was a little bit of a different feeling to it, but just being with people experiencing the joy of music was like, it felt like normal. It felt like, like real life. Um, I have a, a calendar here at the house that is February, 2020. And it has, it's, you know, whiteboard calendar. And I, it's almost like a memorial to pre-pandemic life. It has this packed schedule of travel and shows. The last show I saw before the pandemic, which was Stanton Moore with Galactic, um, is on there. You know, just everything is on this calendar. And I like have been hesitant to erase it, which is weird, <laughs> but like, I, it was the strangest thing. I kind of came home from that show and I was like, I came home from the Nate Smith show last week and I thought, okay, it's time to erase that. Like, like it's okay. We're moving forward. This is, there's something now 
to to kind of like move forward into real life again. I don't know. I I forget if I spend too much time at home without being out and about that I even need to put a mask on to go out. Like I'll forget. And part of yeah. that being part of that is being vaccinated. But um, mm -hmm. I I firmly believe like whether you're talking about teaching a student or um, or you're an athlete and you're getting back into a sport that you need to distance yourself from bad habits and bad memories so that you can get into a more positive space. And I think mm -hmm. that going out to see live music right now and doing things in public is really important to getting past the sort of headspace that a lot of us are in. Um, right. Much like if you continue to repeat, you know, the wrong sticking of a rudiment, it's gonna it's gonna ingrain that that improper pattern. Uh, and yeah. that's, that's your default. So I don't wanna wind up in a position where my default is to fear people or to fear public or to not want to go support live music. So I, I, you know, we have been very vocally um, thankful uh, of anyone that has come out to our shows in the past month or so and reminding people that we, you know, we all, we even had a, we had to cancel um, the last two shows of our, our tour um, this fall because of a positive COVID case. We did everything we could to stay, you know, a bubble and testing all the time and still there was a breakthrough case and um it was towards the end of tour and the you know we we might have been able to make it through um the mm -hmm. shows but it just didn't feel responsible to do that and it felt better to you know just spit it out and I, again we tried we did the best we could but again i applaud anyone that's out there like Nate, I mean, anyone, especially the people that are doing smaller venues and club shows where it's not like a big, you know, spacious room and there's well circulated air or outdoor shows. It's a, it's tough. It's really tough, but. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and you know, I applaud you all too for getting out there and getting, getting the live music back. And, um, I was, trying my best to get to Red Rocks to see you play Red Rocks um, with Jules from DW. And <laughs> I know, because she was solo. I felt so bad, but I understand why she was solo. Yes, yeah, um, absolutely. But, um, and I, yeah. I just wanted, obviously, want to see you, want to see you play, wanted that to be my first show. Um, and Red Rocks is like a destination that's on my wish list to yeah, get to. Been there yet? Are you I've never been! Really? That surprises me. I mean, when Jules said she'd never been, I was like, no way. You've been in this industry way too long to not go visit at least one artist. At right. Point. I Well, I guarantee we'll be back. So you and Jules should make a pact to revisit Red Rock. It was funny. I was in Denver the day before because I'd flown in. And turns out um, Jules Thomas from DW, if anyone doesn't know who we're talking about, was standing in line to see a comedy show uh across the street from where i was standing to get some takeout food what he was actually staying at a hotel a long ways away but we didn't find out until the next morning that like i literally walked by the line that she was standing in and i didn't even get a chance to see her because of the covid protocols with being on tour right now you just can't go and do what you normally do and hang out and see people and right super sad but it's very funny that we were within you know 30 feet of each other 
That is funny. Oh my goodness. But, and I, I think Jules actually introduced us to each other. I'm pretty sure at one, some, yeah. some trade show, which, yep. um, we didn't have the chance to work together way back then. You, you know, you were using different companies gear and, but we just, Jules introduced us. And from that night I was like, okay, we're friends. Like we, <laughs> we just have yeah, to be friends. I think, I think you and I and Jules and Garrison all told equally tasteless jokes. And <laughs> <laughs> at lunch, we were taking a break from the booth and I think also, yeah. I've, um, I mean, I've always had a ton of respect for everyone that has worked for any of the companies um, that I work with and or haven't worked with yet um, because of my background in music retail. And there was a time when I went to the NAMM show doing, you know, annual orders and taking meetings with people. And um, I, I remember the names of the very first reps that we ever had, you know, when I was 19 years old working in a music store because, you know, they were... They're important people to me back then as they still are today. But I think maybe that's you, you and I probably saw on that level too. Like, oh, this guy isn't just uh, here to ask me for free shit. Um, right. You also, also didn't try and poach me from the company I was with at the time. You're like, you're like hey, you know, you ought to try the, uh, no, <laughs> none of that. It was just, it was a good, it was a great thing. So yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, back, back to missing Nam and good people and career people in the industry. I know, I know. And I, you know, that was, that was an important thing to me as well was um, everyone has their preference and never putting pressure on someone to play something that they weren't into, even at the moment, because people's tastes change over time. And, you know, so that was, that was important, right. but I just, you know, that year, it's so funny. Cause I forgot that we, we just, yeah, we spent lunch telling jokes and, <laughs> and I, I was, I was blushing. I was like, oh my God, I didn't realize that this, <laughs> this, this was what happened in Nam with these people. <laughs> but no, it was awesome. It was great. That's so, so funny. And anyone who knows me knows I am the worst at remembering jokes and punchlines. So I'm sure that I did not <laughs> contribute very well to that conversation, but I'm sure I laughed a lot. So. <laughs> You contributed more giggle than any of us. That's for sure. I'm sure I did. I totally, totally imagine that. Um, yeah, I can't can't remember a punchline to save my life. I'm that person who's like, oh, I have this joke. And then I like, you know, say the punchline first. And then I'm like, oh, wait, that's not how it goes. So, yeah, it's not my thing. But I appreciate humor and comedy so much. And especially over the past year and a half, I feel like a lot of what... Um, besides music stuff that I've been consuming on social media or on YouTube, a lot of it's been comedy stuff. And, you know, that's like carried me through. So. Comic relief is, is really important, really huge. Absolutely, 100%. Um, so going back to what you just talked about though, about working in retail, um, was that like in high school, you said you were 19, so like so high school after, age? After high school. I worked uh, retail, like in a little fly fishing shop, because where I'm from, there's a lot of outdoor activities, and um, fly fishing was one that I was passionate about. And so, for the time I was 14 until, um, I guess 20, there was a little overlap with the jobs. Maybe it was more like 14 to, to 19. I guess I worked in a fly fishing shop and had the point of sale reference down. You know, I. I <laughs> 
understood how to, you know, sell things in a computer and keep track of inventory. And at the same time, I was doing a little moonlighting and, and working for my dad, who's a contractor, and just busting my ass, working out of town jobs, crazy stuff from steel work to driving backhoes and bulldozers and wow. uh, really heavy lifting shit that was destroying my hands, my feet. And all the while, I was trying to be a drummer. Um, with a little band in Bellingham, Washington. And I would stop by a lot of out-of-town work. I would drive through Seattle and stop at American Music. And, of course, as every drummer knows, you get to know your local drum shop shop or the drum shop guy or gal or who, whoever it is you see for your, all your supplies and equipment. Yes. About equipment. Um, and the guy at that time, his name was Ben Anderson at American Music, said, hey, I'm going to be leaving here if you're interested. He's like, you obviously know product. I mean, I was the kid that knew symbol stand model numbers, you know, <laughs> yeah. and all the stick sizes and head codes. And I mean, literally, I would go in and ask at 14, like I thought I was cool for a BA0114. Ambassador. <laughs> um and still to this day when i put in orders with companies for tour supplies or studio supplies i write down the codes that they usually have to enter in their computers so uh, helpful driving to seattle one time uh the guy said hey if you want me to put a word in for you if you want to interview you we were looking for someone to work in the drum shop and i was like absolutely um it was a low time in my life in terms of just not being very fulfilled with the work I was doing and I wanted to live in Seattle and make a big push for it. So I stopped by one day after work, literally in oil stained Carhartts, smelled like diesel, big old beard, dirty, you know, my hands were blackened. They couldn't even be clean because of all the work I was doing and mm -hmm. sat down in um, the manager's office, Kyle Kovalik, and um, did an interview and he basically said, well, you come recommended tell me a little about yourself and a week later i moved to seattle at 19 years old i was still living at home left home um never looked back and i realized that 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 was the the moment you know mm. i mean sure i was able to play in bands and do some studio sessions and do gigs at a you know by the time i was 15 on a local level but getting to a place like seattle and getting into you know the circles of what was happening in Seattle in 1994. Wow. It was a pretty, pretty rad time to be there at a music store. I mean, cause Grohl was still coming to the shop and sit down and try stuff out, even though he didn't have to. Um, Matt Cameron was around and, and um, Matt Chamberlain had recently moved to Seattle. Um, and he was like bringing in flyers, you know, like looking for students and like, course took a tore a piece of paper off and went and hung out with him and I love it jammed with him and so there was a it was a really great place to be at 19 years old I was able to walk to work I scored what would be a legendary low rent price um, for Seattle standards 187.50 is what I paid for a room and a house that was yeah right we're talking dollars wow. um, <laughs> at a room and a house and I walked to work Wow. Have to have a car. And I mean, I really lucked out. But over the course of a year of being there in the music store, met a lot of people. Um, took I even, um, I had studied previously. I was driving back and forth to study at the Seattle Drum School. Mm -hmm. Once they found out I had moved to Seattle, they said, hey, if you have any students, since you know the curriculum, you're welcome to 
we'll give you a room and you can start teaching here. And so I started doing that and I was getting students through um, American music and yeah, the rest just kind of snowballed from there um, in terms of my moving out, taking a step forward into more of the music industry, which is when I started on the NAM. Yeah. Anyway, so great. It goes on and on and on, a lot of details, but you know, I think everyone needs to, everyone can relate to that, whatever that step was that they took, whether that's with a band or uh, a music store, or music school mm -hmm. or an audition, whatever that, that was my step for sure. That's so great. And, and a lot of times for a lot of people, that step is like a little bit scary. Um, oh, oh course right terrifying i mean i because i had no money you know when i moved down there i lucked out at the the rent but i had this whole plan i was like mom i'm just i, I had a van and i was like i'm just gonna park outside meadowbrook pool that way i can exercise and shower every morning and then i'll just go to work and i won't have to pay rent i mean <laughs> when the world is your oyster <laughs> you know you, you but you were it just shows that like you're willing to do what it takes to follow that dream that you yeah. had and i think um i i always say like take the leap take the chance sure. um yeah because you don't know you never know and you only you only know what you'll continue doing if you don't take the chance if you don't follow you know what it is that's in your heart you could you could go back and find another job in driving a backhoe if you had to, but you know, you'll never know if you could have made it and you're like proof that you can make it. So, well, and I mean, to, to fast forward, to fast track a little bit, I was in Seattle by the time I was 19, but then I was back and forth between Bellingham, Seattle to just, uh, the music store, you might hear my pug snoring now. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's um, great. It's not me. It's nothing I ate. <laughs> um, I was back and forth between um, Seattle and Bellingham, and I worked at a few different music stores. Uh, a place called Strictly Percussion. I don't know if you remember them or mm -hmm. not. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. Trading Musician was another spot that I worked. Um, all part time because I was trying to teach the rest mm -hmm. of the, you know the other part time. Um, and then uh, it wasn't until. 2000 right around 2000 i guess that i moved down to seattle for a longer period and started teaching like really full-time at seattle drum school and i had enough students that um i could have continued to do that i was really passionate about it um i had some students come in that were professional players and or some that were young that went on to be professional players are really there's a lot of reward in in working with uh students for years at a time which is yeah. you know i had students that i started when they were five and they're you know they worked with me until they were 17 or 18. um but uh death cab was in bellingham and there was two separate occasions that they had asked me to fill in for them Mm -hmm. in between drummers and the first two times I said no uh, because of what I had going on whether it was another band or the teaching and they were still driving around in a crappy van and um, they were getting a lot of press and mm -hmm. like on an upward trajectory but I said no twice um, and it wasn't until transatlanticism um, their fourth record that I 
realized that like my world wasn't going to change dramatically. Like I had maybe reached a glass ceiling with the teaching at the drum school and the bands that I was playing in around Seattle where there I was, you know, I was into them, you know, I had friendships, music was uh, engaging, but there was not a lot of commercial success sort of potential. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I wanted a little bit more than that. And basically I just, I wound up in a rehearsal with a bass player from Death Cab who I'd played in a band with previously, like five or six years before that um, and said, he and I were filling in for another band and I just told him one night after rehearsal, he and I were just hanging out and I said, you need to use me for your next record. <laughs> and it That's was great. It was one of the tallest moments in my life where I had to literally stand as tall as I could, find as much courage and pride mm -hmm. because I realized by saying that what I was doing was, you know, putting it in other words, I think I could do better than who you currently have playing right and right. that is, it is not in my nature um but it was i guess another way to look at it is that you know if you're if you're doing justice for a student you're not going to tell a student that what they're doing is is great if it's not great sure and so i was because of the friendship and the history i had and and we we you know they had asked me twice before so it wasn't like wasn't like I was just coming in like Keith Moon to like knock somebody over and um, <laughs> it was an honest like I think I could help you guys be a really good band mm -hmm. and I think it was also at a time when they were um, struggling a little bit internally um, with the chemistry sure. of everyone who was in the band and, and maybe the drummer might have been part of that I, I don't know for sure but it was also just before they were about to make a record. So it was good timing, but mm -hmm. I had to be, I had to say no twice. I had to be at a certain point in my life where I was ready to take that leap of faith. Like you said, like find mm -hmm. her and just be like, why not? I'm just going to speak my mind here. Um, and I went for it. And obviously that was one of the best decisions I ever made because that was, you know, October of, of 2002. Wow. So almost 20 years. Wow. That's, that's amazing. And, that, yeah. and what you've all done together since then is just pretty incredible. Um, you know, and you continue to make music, you continue to make really great music. And I, I'm just, I'm just such a fan. I feel so happy to have seen you all on that tour, which I think was, I think that might've been 2019 when you came through the wing. Yep. theater um actually that night the show was so great and on the way home i was in a crazy accident on the highway if you remember that I remember that right remember you and matt both your husband yeah all right a car a car spun around on the highway and then hit us wow. head on which was really crazy um we blamed it on the death on the uh, name <laughs> proximity to the band name <laughs> right well, that's a little that's a little frightening but but i only say this because and and we were fine and and you know th things were okay um everyone involved was fine the people in the other vehicle um were okay as well which is crazy that that everything was fine but you were so great you came to my office the next day and made me coffee um you're like i'm coming to see you <laughs> 
and I'm going to make you coffee at your desk. And you brought all the things that you needed to make the coffee. Yeah. And that was just did, the sweetest did a, thing. You did a pour over, right? Yes. <laughs> did I come, was I with anyone or did I come solo on that trip? No, you were, who were you with? I wasn't with Ronnie, was I? Or was I with Rob? That's right. It was you and Rob. Yes. Yes. Oh my goodness. It was feels like so it feels like an entire lifetime ago. Um, but no, you were with Rob. You both came. That was, I remember now. And it was so, so sweet. I think I was a little bit in a daze from everything that had happened. I remember that. Yeah. You were, you were, I don't know if you were um if you your neck was a little bit tweaked or, or yeah, you definitely your back was tied or something like that. But yes, I yeah. talk you into I like offered you coffee and you're like, I don't really, I don't know. I think initially and Rob was like, no, you should let him like make you a pour over. But yes. Um, yeah. Traveling with coffee. That's, um, that's something that um, Mark Juliana, Juliana and I talk about all the time. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's survival, right? We all need our cushion comfort. Some people bring pillows. Some people bring pour over kits. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. I was just so impressed by the, the rig that you had, the traveling rig that you had. It was pretty great. You got hand ground. Like, yes. Yeah. It was so, it you was, know, even if it sucked, you were really kind in terms of like sipping it. Oh no, no, it was so good. <laughs> it was so, so good. I was just like, I was very impressed. I was like, okay, I need to get on my coffee game. And I did not get on my coffee game, but maybe. But <laughs> Life's busy. You know, play. yeah, life is life has been so busy. It's so crazy since then. But um, not that it isn't always. But that was very, very sweet. But yeah, I was so so happy to see you guys on that tour, and it was it was just incredible. Um, the great sounding room. It was. Oh my gosh, that's one of my favorite places to see a show in Boston. It's just not only is it beautiful, but like the sound. You know, it's it's built built for sound, and it's just. Yeah, the the theater, it, it's um it's the place where they have like the productions, you know, the nutcracker around Christmas time and all that stuff. So the dynamics are like perfect. Like, yeah, yeah. I remember. I mean, we it's it's sad to say that we often judge how well a show goes or is based on room acoustics, but it's it's true. I mean, if you have a room that you can, you know, that's at your fingertips. Like you can yes. be as dynamic as you want. You, you obviously you have a better show versus not having any bearings for where a wall is. Um, we a few weeks ago we opened for the Foo Fighters, um, opening the Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, which they just mm -hmm. was the old Key Arena, which was where the Sonics played, um, and uh, Amazon bought it and turned it into a a zero emission, negative emission building. Um, that's why it's called Climate Pledge Arena, but it's beautiful inside. But holy crap, I went to up for a line check and um, hit my bass drum and it was like, <laughs> three <laughs> seconds later and you know, you hit your snare drum and it doesn't matter how high you have it tuned, it just sounds like an eight inch field drum, you know. Wow. Easy. And I think that it's, don't get me wrong. I mean, playing in a space like that, 17,000 people is incredible, but the acoustic experience can just be a, bum, a bummer, you know, unless you set up your gear 
to be in a space like that. Like Taylor Hawkins had like a like a marching. I think he had a flam slam snare drum head. And <laughs> if he had cranked it any more, like the tension rods would have pulled the lugs off of the shell. Um, and then on top of that, he had some crazy paper towel covered with gaff tape with contact cement, like on top of the head, something like <laughs> drum tech to more configured maybe i just let a secret out of the bag but no. when i was up there on the riser with taylor he's like check this out and he hit it and i was like holy shit i felt like i was in a like at a marching competition it was so sharp and so wow bright. but then you go up front you know and i was in front of house when they were doing their sound check and it sounded like pure magic like a totally different drum you know i love that yeah. that's so Some great going to say a room acoustics um they uh they can mess with your head big time and i've always been impressed by well, as you mentioned his name earlier like nate smith and the dynamics that he has a you know like at his disposal um and i i try i've tried for years to employ those dynamics and it's just tough when you get in some of those big rooms but i, I think a lot of drummers who've who do a range of touring from small intimate venues to, to larger venues could would say the same thing. It's just, it's crazy. So when you do get in a big, beautiful room like Buck Wang, um, it's just, it's incredible. You want to stay there. You want to do like a multiple night stand at a place like that. Yes. Yeah. And actually they've been doing um, multiple night shows, like mini residencies lately I've been seeing. Um, I haven't seen a show there. Actually, I haven't seen a show there since that show. Um, but they do do that lately, like mini residencies, which I think is great. Um, but speaking of sound, you know, you're so, I think of you as very, very specific with your sound and very creative as well. So, you know, you'll post a video and you have like, um, like a handkerchief over a drum or different ways to dampen and always seem to have like a, a new unique way to make the sound that you need to make. Um, it is, it's I'm trying to think if that stems from me trying to be creative or if it stems from me being hyper aware of how much drum sounds have changed over the years. I think it's both. I mean, when I first started um, playing the drums with the goal of, of like just exploring, like drum set was still new, right? Like mm -hmm. I, I put together what I could and maybe that meant if I wanted three toms up top that I had a snare drum with the wires off on a stand really high. Like mm -hmm. you did what you could to, to find a a lane or a path that helped me be creative. But one thing I always used to do when I sat down is I would sit down and start like this. I would say to myself, I'm going to play something that I've never played before, that I've never heard before. Mm. And I would start like rolls in reverse, or I would, you know, left hand on the hat, or instead of, you know, keeping time where your bass drum is marking in normal spots, it would be the hi-hat foot, you know, or it would be whatever I play one direction, I would I would look at the piece of music as a mirror and play it backwards. So it'd be like a, you know, um, like a Rorschach kind of vibe. Yeah. And I think that sonically I've carried that theme uh, whenever I'm um, 
uh, engineering here at my desk. I'm I'm I want to get away from what's predictable, mm -hmm. uh, but I don't want to. But my my foot is on the home plate always of predictability. So I think that you need to when you're making music, when you're creating a part, when you're playing time, whatever, that you need to have it be immediately recognizable to the general public. But the more layers of depth and complexity you have in it, um, to me, the more you're going to define your sound and who you are. So mm. as I mean, I'm, I'm not the first person to put a, a tackle towel or a, a t-shirt or something like that on top of a drum or a piece of duct tape or a tambourine or a piece of metal or whatever. But very early on, I was putting Keplinger pieces of metal. Greg, I used Greg lived in, he still lives in Seattle, but Greg Keplinger had these. I'm going to get one. Hold on one second. Okay. So every time Greg Keplinger would make a snare drum, he would roll the metal of the shell and there would be some leftover in the shell. Mm -hmm cut that and make a weld to have the perfect sound snare drum. So he would have these pieces of metal. This was like basically the, the top of the fold. And he would mm -hmm. come have these lying around his house. And like this one here still says 1996 from the first brass drum that he ever made me. And I was like, what are you going to do with that piece? And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> I put it on a drum or I think he hammered a little. Or maybe he hadn't. I put it on a drum and, and it had this kind of warbly sound i'll play it for you right now just because we're having fun in your podcast <laughs> um you know these pieces of metal wound up on drums so they had like mm -hmm. warbly sounds and i started tracking with those sounds and people people started taking the interest in what i was doing i was like all right so i guess finding weird shit to to put into your grooves is a, is a good thing and again, I just pick on that path. So um, whether you're engineering or you're preparing drums uh, with with just simple means of a towel or a piece of paper or a big fat stern or whatever, I think that that's really uh, important to try because so many listeners these days on the radio have not, they haven't grown up with traditional drum sounds. Yes. Like you and I can put on a, a record and listen to Omar Hakim or Steve Gadd or, you know, Matt Cameron or, or whomever and recognize those sounds and know who those drummers are. Absolutely. They, they did that with a set of traditional sounds that they had at that time. But, you know, starting who knows when, when everybody started making records in their bedroom by dragging and dropping loops and some of them sounded proper and some of them sounded improper like the expectations for listeners these days are not those traditional drum sounds and i you know that that's not to dismiss anything that you know the legends have done for us mm -hmm. i i want dennis chambers to continue to sound like dennis chambers yes please but a lot of the <laughs> a lot of the producers and artists that i work with these days are wanting to hear something different they absolutely like i can't like no matter how good of a traditional drum sound i can record in my room mm -hmm. there's no guarantee that that's going to get me work um and as a matter of fact I, there's a teaser just that came out today 
um, which you will love. Um, there's an artist named Lennon Stella, a Canadian artist, a really talented singer, um, who I got to play on a track that is kind of was the, it'll be the second sort of single for her upcoming album. And the drum sound is um, Zildjian L80s are the cymbals. Wow. And the kit is a mesh head kit, Remo silent stroke heads. And then after playing that practice kit, which you've seen me use in like uh, videos. Yeah. When you, hear, when you hear this on her record, you're going to be like, what? Wow. Like, because nowadays you could take your drum sounds and you can um, track them however you want and then sample support and like add in. So I could record a bass drum, a real bass drum and layer it with a silent stroke head and give it this dual tone presence. And when you hear the, the L80 hi-hats come in in the track, it's it's like, what is that sound? Is it programmed? Is it, you know, but it's, again, I'm not going to give away all the secrets and sauce, but it's how mm -hmm. I prepared and the sticks that I chose. And um, when, when I heard back from the producer, he, I had sent him this loop along with several others. And it's just one that he listened to, gravitated towards, and they ended up writing the song. Um, not i'm not going to say it's my fault or like i'm responsible for this tune but they ended, it ended up being a, an essential part of the song and he wanted to make sure that i was cool with them using it i was like totally mm -hmm. but if it wasn't for me going down the path of like how can i be untraditional in terms of the presentation of my art if i didn't go down that path the song wouldn't be in the world so right. as much as i want to get behind every companies traditionally made products uh i can't stress enough to to young drummers i know there a lot of drummers are doing this i, I feel like i'm dinosaur in the, in the eyes of most of the kids playing these days but it's it's important to stretch and to yeah. not, not just technically but sonically um present yourself in a way that's fresh and absolutely yeah yeah, so. Yeah. And I think that, um, like you just, you touched on that, the fact that we grew up listening to music that was tracked live, you know, and like all the, all the, the band was like in a room together <laughs> playing to tape yeah. and, um, and the sound, the sound is just, it's just such a different thing. Like when I started playing drums, the options were limited and it didn't seem that way back then because there were tons of options, you know, but as far as like, the materials and how things were were made and we didn't have you know we had like zero you know the zero rings right for the for the for the drums we didn't have things like big fat snare drum or all oh. so many options for like you know the l80s the the silent stroke heads all the different head options now you know it's just all of that or, stuff or it's incredible Stick options too, yeah. Stick I mean, options, yeah. Symbol options. Um, you would never, you know, all the all the symbol sounds that exist nowadays. Um, all of the effect symbols and the things that aren't even like we wouldn't have thought of as symbols, <laughs> like you uh, know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, like bald man percussion. Like there's all yeah, all that stuff. I, um, you know, another in talking about prepared drummers, like I I do as much as I can to tweak a very basic drum set. A, mm -hmm. a four piece kit but with all the different head overlays big fat center drum roots eq towels tape uh, mm -hmm. gels 
different sticks and rods, whatever, obviously we could take that one kit and make a dozen or more different drum sounds out of it. Yes. And same thing with plugins and, you know, a lot of weird, weird outboard gear these days for recording. I mean, a kid can have one crappy microphone and record his drum set and, or her drum set and put it into a computer and run it through any number of processing signals and all of a sudden they have a they have a vibe and someone's writing a song on it. But I wanted to not forget about uh, Glenn Kochi in terms of talking yes. about being inspired by drummers. Oh, yes. Repair gear. And I mean, his, I saw Wilco. I mean, I've known Glenn since we met for MD Fest 2006. I think, mm -hmm. When both of us wound up at the New Jersey Performing Arts Center and wondered what the hell we were doing there with <laughs> with Ron Bruner Jr. and Stuart Copeland and Aaron Spears and the whole Gospel Summit and uh, oh, it was incredible! We, we were like two little scared boys, like holding each other, like in the corner because we didn't we didn't know why we were there. We were, oh no! We were, no. We, were, we were band guys. We're like, what? But really, Glenn needed to be there because he had the monkey chant like dialed and ready to go, and springs coming out of his hair. And I was like, who is this guy? Yes. I, mean, I knew Wilco, but I hadn't spent much time with Glenn as a person. But um, yeah, I and seeing Wilco a month ago here in town, and how often he changed just the sticks or the mallets or whatever shape he was making on a drum set over the course of a night, it was. It was incredible. And again, I I think that music these days, because it's coming from laptops and, and loops mm -hmm. and samples and all kinds of stuff, like what's interesting is how it's being presented. And it is not being presented the same way every time or in in the form of a traditional instrument. It just isn't. So I gotta fight really hard and remind myself as much as I love the sound of drums out of the box the way that I first heard them in the in the you know, 80s, like, yeah, but that's not the thing that is turning the heads of listeners, producers, the industry. So, sure, yeah, but it's so smart, it's so smart of you to recognize that and to, you know, adjust and and do what's necessary now, explore what's necessary now, and that's not always easy either. Um, but I, I agree with you, and artists like like Glenn as well. Um, I think of him anytime I see something new percussive wise, uh, you know, I just think, Ooh, Glenn would like that. Or I wonder if Glenn's using that, that I was just texting with him the other day. Um, he, there's one thing on his kit that I think of all the time when I think of Glenn is, um, he has a, like a fruit, the fruit basket thing. Do you know what I'm talking about? He has this like, wire um oh, yeah, fruit yeah, yeah. Basket, yeah, right yeah, yeah. there was a wedding gift when he got married and it, and, it, and of course i'm like you know your wife is so sweet <laughs> to just feel like here's you know this wedding gift but um now it's a percussive <laughs> instrument but it i think of him all the time with stuff like that because it is so his his mind just works in that way where he um thinks of things and i think a lot of percussionists think of things like anything can make noise and be tapped on. Um, but like to incorporate it into modern music, I think is a, an incredible talent. And I, and that's why I brought it up with you because I do see you doing things like that. And I love that you brought out those pieces of metal because that's like the perfect example. Well, I, you know, to me, 
whatever we need to do to tap into the most inspired space. Mm -hmm. um, and another simple metaphor for it is like, sometimes you're hungry and you want to eat food and you don't know what you want to eat. You just mm -hmm. not that satisfying just because you need sustenance and you don't sleep well or whatever. It's like, it's not, it's not like an elated meal. It's not like you go out to a place that has curated a course of food that makes you have a psychological reaction to what you're doing. Like you get emotional because the food is so good. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that I ever want to play anything. I don't think that anything that I record for somebody has ever left my studio unemotional or inspired in mm. like if i'm just going through the motions i mean sure i've been asked to do a can you just do a four on the floor and copy this exact programming sure you got it mm -hmm. but i guarantee you that i sift through the the, the rack of 25 snare drums over here to find the right sound what i think is the right option uh but the point is it's you can tap into inspiration no matter what you're doing whether it's on a basketball court or on the slopes or with your partner or with your kids um, or a brand new book or a special meal or just uh, whatever stepping outside to see the blue sky and smell the air like those moments of pure intoxication in terms of inspiration and feeling like your eyes are wide open and you're you're limitless those can be found in something other than your normal drum sound right or your sticks yes. or your, they they put you in a different place it's a different lens you know and a lot of us i think are guilty of using the same writing tools or looking through the same lens mm -hmm. and um i don't think that those people will have as much resonance that's all sure yeah i love though i love thinking about that like when you have those experiences when your eyes are wide open and not only having those experiences, but recognizing them when they're happening, I think is like the greatest gift ever. Like acknowledging that you're, you just unlocked a new part of your brain. I don't know. That's how I describe it, but. It, it takes, and it takes practice. I don't yeah. Think that's a, an easy, um, I don't think we're guaranteed that kind of, you know, it's not like you get out of bed and there's a key in your bedside table for the, to unlock those doors like mm -hmm. at all. It really takes practice. And um, that often means a lot of discomfort. You know? Yes. And that's that's OK, too. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, and I, I agree with you, too. I think on the other side of the discomfort, that's when those moments happen. Agreed. Right. They don't come by just, you know, getting up and doing the same thing every day, day in, day out. It comes when you put yourself, you, when you take the risk or when you do something that's like a little bit scary or unfamiliar. And I think that's when those moments come. Like after the fact, you recognize your own um, capacity for whatever it was. Um, well, you're tapping into that fight or flight thing, too. You know? Right. Same way that, you know, if you're, if, if something, if a fast car was coming towards your kid, you would be, you would, you would break your record for sprinting speed, right? You would, you right. would make sure that they didn't get hurt. And um, that's why live performances are still so intoxicating. That's why records that were made on tape, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago still hold up because they were people tapping into those, those moments. Yes. 
a lot of that has been lost. Not to say that like the computer can't be an incredibly useful tool. There's a mm -hmm. lot of, I think that happy accidents have come pretty fast in the world of, you know, computer recording. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's something that I try and convey to my students all the time. Like we talk about the psychology of learning and what happens when they're practicing and I'm, I'm having them on a screen, you know, it's been mm -hmm. on screen. It hasn't been on in person lately, but um, when they are learning something new and I'm, I'm hearing the, the, the pitfalls and the stumbling blocks, like we talk about what those are and why they're happening. Just like, you know, it's not uncommon for a student to, to like make connections and play the, a bar to write the way that it's written or the way that it's intended. And then as soon as it's over, they stop. Mm -hmm. they're, they're sort of, it's almost like, I was joking with one student who played this exercise. It took them all lesson to play this really difficult pattern. And um, as soon as he made it through, of course, he couldn't make it past bar one. And I made a joke. I was like, dude, you were cruising down the street. You just stopped. You got out of your car to look around to make sure that you actually just drove by. Like, <laughs> you Did that just happen? You know, there was this whole psychological like, don't overthink it. Don't be afraid of that moment. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. They are, it's like unknown, uncharted territory, whether we're creating something new or, or, you know, in a live setting, but trying to stay focused and not afraid of like the dark basically yeah. is where all that magic really lies. That's where the greatest performances, best vocal takes, like all that stuff comes from is like, you know, unharnessed, pure first time events. I love that analogy. That's that's perfect. And I I think like the the way what you just said made me think about um rock climbing, you know, or 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 <laughs> or uh climbing a ladder even. And yeah. you're you if you are focusing on where you're going and what you're doing, you can go as high as you want, right? If you look down to see where you are or where you've been, that's when things go wrong. That's when you just, yeah. right? Um, but yeah, if you're if you're in that moment, and you're focused on what you're doing and looking ahead. That's when you that's when you make it. You make it to the top. Um, you complete it. You know. And then I I do I think about that. I love I indoor rock climbing in particular is one of my favorite things in the world. Um, and I, I find that, you know, if I'm just focused and I'm just, I'm going like, I, that's where I'm going, I'm going up and on the next, just on the next move and you just, you just make it. That's what you do. Well, there's no command Z or Apple Z when you're rock climbing. Right. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Uh, you can't undo. I think that we we stop ourselves from performing, especially in a studio, because we know that we can easily just go back and do it again. Sure. Um, none of that practice makes us better. Really. Right. It does to some extent, but it's not the same as committing. Mm -hmm. I always play way better after a tour. When I come home and record, if, if I've just been on tour, it's like, you know first takes of everything like blown through because it's not because my hands and feet are stronger it's because my brain is used to doing the focus thing and just clicking a song off and and go and not stop yeah. just like i'm sure if you're climbing over a real rock wall <laughs> you know like 
literally above you yeah defying fall like you would you would not lose your focus you would do what it takes right you to just get... yeah you're you'd be doing like one finger <laughs> pull-ups on the ledge you'd be right i'm picturing um mission impossible like that rock climbing scene that made my stomach flip upside down <laughs> I'm I'm shaky thinking about right. That. I can't I can't think about that. I don't um, want to get I don't want anyone to get the 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 opinion I'm or the impression I'm like a a freak for fear. <laughs> but, no, no. Yeah, it's all about just tapping into the right spaces. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, and I like you know, indoor rock climbing is great. You're tethered. You are you know you can. You got mats. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There's a there's a, there's definitely a a safety factor there. So yeah, we're not we're not climbing over above a crevice with no ropes, but Maybe but so. it's a good analogy. <laughs> um, yeah, and I just you know thinking back to the quarantine and pandemic and all of that, I know you are where you are right now is a really great setup to spend some time, <laughs> but um. I'm sure you are really excited to get back out on the road and get those shows out there and play some live music. And it had to have been refreshing to just, like you said, feel like it was a little bit of normalcy. Yeah. We, we, I mean, for, you know, we just did a short run cause we're, we're working on a, a new record right now. Um, so it was just a, a little burst of getting out there. Um, and even though it was just a handful of shows, uh, I think we did uh, like 10 shows over the course of six weeks, kind of spread mm -hmm. out. Um, it was, again, counting off songs, walking on stage, clicking off a tune was if the world never had a problem. And that's not, that's not meant to sound callous because um, obviously there's nothing but tragedy um, with this pandemic, but the, the good thing that has come about is, I think, thankfulness for what we do have and what we can't do. And that was very evident, being on the road and playing shows. Um, but we didn't do the normal tour stuff where you get to hang and see people and right. you know, record shop and go out to eat at restaurants you, you, you missed, you know. Uh, uh, it, was, it was a lot more, it was bubble touring, COVID protocol touring. Um, uh, but it was it was totally worth it. And yeah, it was fantastic to be out That's there. So good. And, so and I get the same story from everyone who's out there right now um, that I stay in touch with. Absolutely. Back out on the road. Yeah. And what is your so you have an album that you're working on right now? Um, and is that yeah. like a 2022 yeah. release? It'll be a 22 release. Yep. It'll be it's all I mean, there's always 11th hour writing, but I think majority of it is written and we've rehearsed and done pre-production. And we spent the last year and a half doing this really creative, um, not like it's an, a brand new idea, but we've just been doing a lot of file sharing. So mm -hmm. um, on a Monday, someone will start a seed of an idea and they'll pass it to the next band member and then they pass it to the next band member. And by Friday, somebody's mixing and uh, we all take turns mixing and and contributing but each person gets to work on their own time like only they're producing the track and that that also might mean that like there are some brutal edits <laughs> uh for whoever did something the day before or sure. 
always a surprise. And so for the literally for the past year and a half, we've been doing this. Um, not every single week there's been breaks, but it has yielded a whole lot of material that um, we've all equally contributed to. I mean, I'm not writing lyrics. It's, you know, everyone everyone does their role, but I've also written music as well. And the band has written either with that or you know used it as just a a wing or an odd to write their own parts. Uh, but there is a lot of material. I think we could have three records if we really wanted, but that doesn't mm-hmm. good. So uh, fortunately, though, I feel like there's enough material that we're ready to, to hit record for real. Um, um in about four weeks um, wow we're gonna be actually committing and, and hopefully we'll be wrapped and ready to have it out um before too long 22. super uh, exciting yeah it is exciting after all this time i mean it was just good i mean we took a full year off of seeing each other and playing in a room together <laughs> yeah we you know looked each other eye to eye and made it happen and that was an amazing feeling um but it was also like old hat i was like oh right like no time's passed at all because we've been a band a long time but absolutely it's it's like family so yeah you know similar with family through the pandemic where people have been you know apart for so long and just well do you consider your hands and your feet family too because trying to get (laughs) my hands and my feet to arrive at the same level you know you my brain automatically goes to like how i felt playing at the end of the last album cycle Mm -hmm. like a full year off and play again it was a little like (gasps) like trying to catch my breath a little bit right it it came back pretty quick right and i've been hearing that from everyone like same same thing like not not even just the hands and the feet but like the cardio (laughs) yeah you know I mean, thankful we, thankful we've all stayed in, in good shape. No one has mm-hmm. put on the COVID fifteen or, or let themselves slip. If anything, I think most of us are probably in the best shape of our life. That's because we've had time to work at it. <laughs> you know, right, right. Well, that's a whole other thing. I think, um, I think that a lot of people have had the time to like get themselves in shape or in better shape too, um, and it's just been how did you spend the time? Right. <laughs> like, yeah. um, and speaking of that, were you doing like remote lessons through this time and, and all of that just kind of, yeah, I did. Keeping I on did that. Lot, um, I did a lot. I've done a lot of remote session work, mm-hmm. a lot of, um, zoom lessons and I'm staying busy. I mean, I, it's funny. I've used my studio more in the past year and a half. Uh, we've been in this house for 11 years. I've used it more in the past year than I did in the first decade that we were here. I bet. I mean, the studio hasn't changed that much. It's it's pretty much looked the same other than little, some drum additions and some new outboard gear. But um, I just, when I was on tour all the time with Death Cab, I have a wife and two kids. And the last thing I wanted to do after a four, five, six week tour or you know, eight months out of 12 being on the road was to come home and be like, really great to see you all again. I'm just going to, I'm going to be in the studio. Um, yeah. Don't bother me. <laughs> you know, lock myself in my basement. I just did not do that. And so I, yeah. it, there wasn't a lot of, you know, I maybe did a one or two records a year. Wow. Um, 
the first decade that I was, unless I was on the road, like, and being pulled into studios, I just, it was very much death cab time and or family time. Mm -hmm. Touring stopped. And it was also in between album cycles and we knew we were going to be taking some time off. I was like, man, I, I need to step up and do a lot of work. So I just put it out there um, that I was available and, and connected with producers that I knew. And, and fortunately, they, they kept me busy. And uh, I did some licensing music and um, probably did a dozen records in, in the past year. So and, great. Uh, on top of that, um, a bunch of random singles and one-offs. And then um, I also uh, was teaching um, maybe two or three days a week at the most, not super busy, but enough to enough to be there for people and help them advance a little bit and, mm -hmm. and still leave time for my own family and my own life. But because I didn't really leave this house a lot, especially in 2020, I was in the studio every single day, mm -hmm. um, which has been a great, you know, I, I think my engineering and um, skills have been, have improved a lot in terms of studio stuff. I'm hoping that will pay off when it comes time to co work for X name producer um, in a few weeks. But um, absolutely. That's great. Yeah. It's been the blessing of the, I mean, dare I say it's been the blessing of this pandemic, but it, it forced me to work. And, Thankfully, I mean, I, I, I had built a commercial studio years ago, so I wasn't new to, and I've been engineering for a, a while, like maybe 2004. Um, but I'm so glad that I built this place when we moved in, because finding out about all these drummers that were touring players that didn't have a real place to practice, or they were scrambling to put together home recording setups, or like the teaching thing, like I'm set up with multiple cameras and people are getting my studio sound not just zoom or computer you know mic but they're actually getting my stereo mix and so we can screen share you know if, if i have a student yeah. it's, it's interested in recording themselves better at home whether that's to, to for social media content or doing remote session work we can actually do a lesson where you know i'm screen sharing with them you know treating turning around like okay i'm the student mm -hmm. i want you to give me something to play uh, give me an idea and i'll play to it and i'll play and i'll record and then i'll share my screen and show them what i just did and be like here's what i did and maybe i'll play it solid and maybe i'll play it super loose and i'll mm -hmm. kind of break it down and we'll say what what, what could i have done better right um, how's this sounding to you and then i'll intentionally move some things around like i'll have a snare drum bottom mic cranked up and it's out of phase not to get all super nerdy but i i do get into with the lessons a lot of the technical aspect of how to record drums and how to edit and make them really think about that side of it so because That's of the perfect cameras and being able to show different angles and work through a situation like that and it's the same thing if i'm working remotely with a producer they can take over my screen and adjust levels and and, uh, that is super cool, actually. I mean, that's like a that's something that students need to know nowadays that, you know, 10, 15 years ago wasn't even a thing. So that's that's incredible. Well, I knew I knew that it was going to be important when at the beginning of the pandemic, I went to go order a, um, a USB to HDMI capture 
dongle and they were back ordered for like six months because right. we wanted to be doing the same thing from home. Um, so again, the fact that I, I had enough foresight unknowingly to build a place that I could work, record, teach, mix, like all things from home mm -hmm. um, was, I mean, godsend. Like I, I, if I was scrambling to build this place without steady income and with as expensive as resources are these days, I'd be right. Bummin, but I was ready to walk into a studio and hit my space bar the second the day the world shut down. Which so really, great. Yeah. Not yeah, bragging. I'm just saying, you know. No, for sure. You're grateful. I mean, yeah. that's important. Absolutely. Um, and I'm I'm excited for your, you know, for for the projects that you're working on, the new album for next year and then for you to get back on the road and see you play. I can't wait for that. No, and then I don't even know what traveling's like anymore. I know. <laughs> I know. Um heading heading out and in, you know, for some travel over the next couple of months uh, for work for work stuff again. And I'm kind of like, okay, how is this going to feel? We'll see. Um but yeah, but it's so great though to see you and see all of the things that you're doing right now and how you've made it through and been able to thrive through this time and and come out on the other side and feel really grateful. And I think that's all it's all we can ask for. Same to you. It's really great to see you and to see that you're set up the way that you are and talking to so many people who've been a big part of your life. And we're, we're all learning a lot. You know, you're opening, you're pulling back the curtain on a lot of musicians and their, and their their ways of going about their days. And it's been very inspiring to see. And listen to thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And before long, we will be back having lunch together, telling jokes. Or are no, you telling good. jokes and me laughing at them? Start remembering <laughs> the punchline now, okay? <laughs> yeah, I'll start. I'm going to start practicing now. So, you know, when that happens, I'll be able to come to the table with something better. <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll impress all of us. Thank you so much, Jason. I so appreciate your time today and cannot wait to see what's on the horizon for you. Thank you very much. Have a great time at PASIC. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Thank you for tuning in today. Join us each Tuesday for new episodes of Sarah Hagen Backstage.